Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation, a bi-weekly podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Mary Cypers, Regional Director of ADL Pacific Northwest. In this episode, I have the joy of speaking with Eric Liu, CEO of Citizen University. Welcome, Eric, to today's show. Let's get started. Well, thank you again for being with us today. Very, very grateful for your time. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your early life. Tell us a little bit more about where you grew up, how you grew up, and how did being the son of Chinese immigrants shape who you are? Well, uh, first of all, Mary, it's just great to be with you in, in conversation and love this opportunity. I um, I grew up in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, right outside of Poughkeepsie, which was an IBM town then and uh, where my dad worked uh, for IBM. And my parents were both uh, immigrants to the United States. They'd been born in China, went to Taiwan during the years of war, and, and then came to the U.S. in the late 50s separately. They didn't meet till they were both in the New York area. And, you know, growing up second generation, as I did, I always had this very uh, strong, unspoken sense all around me that, uh, that all I'd done was have the good luck to be born here, uh, uh, that my parents had done the heavy lifting, that they had made the hard choices. And and that uh, implicitly there, the sense of what are you going to do to make this worthwhile? Like, how are you going to be useful? There is a phrase in Chinese and Mandarin, which is meo yong, uh, which means basically useless. No kid wants to be called meo yong about anything, you know, whether it's about not doing your chores or uh, not being a useful member of community or, uh, you know, kind of fulfilling your obligations to family or otherwise. And um, and so I think that base layer of just be useful, right, was formative. And I think as well, um, you know, growing up in that environment at that time was very conscious that, uh, um, you know, we were one of the relatively small, there's a relatively small Chinese community uh, in the Hudson Valley, but kind of organized and my parents were very active um, in organizing this Mid-Hudson Chinese Association and um, doing their holiday parties and their golf tournaments and their Chinese school on Sunday, which I went to every Sunday, you know, up till maybe middle school years. And I think from them, I also just learned that, that sense of be engaged, participate in your community, however you might define your community. And again, don't don't sit back. And, uh, uh, and I didn't particularly uh, in later years uh, realize how much that was just in my muscle memory, but that I think shaped me. Yeah, it's incredible to think of how the immigrant experience is just kind of baked in our DNA, whether you're second generation or first or, you know, even third, like myself, um, yeah. that desire to improve the community and make a mark and be useful and, and do well when society and for ourselves, I think is something that was definitely imprinted on me as well. Well, I think um, about, you know, where the community I grew up in had a pretty uh, substantial Jewish community, and there was just a sense of kinship uh, growing up uh, because, um, you know, many of the fam- Jewish families uh, in Wappingers Falls in Poughkeepsie, where I lived, were second or third generation, right? But there, it was living memory in the family, you know, to, uh, people who had migrated to the United States and maybe been in New York in the Lower East Side or this part of the city um, and had kind of made it up to uh, these kind of outer suburbs. and. Um, and that sense of, um, you know, not only being appreciative of what came before you, uh, but also the sense of you're holding on to an inheritance that perhaps with each passing generation, 
is decaying a little bit, right? I, I'm proficient in Chinese, but I'm not fluent in Chinese. Uh, and uh, my daughter, who's third generation and mixed race, uh, though I steeped her in Chinese lessons as a little kid, um, has almost no proficiency in Chinese, right? And so um, that question of what does it mean to acculturate, what does it mean to hold on to heritage, um, is something that um, you know a lot of my Jewish friends, of course, could relate to um, in their family narratives, um, and of course, every uh, Chinese American family lives through right now too. Yeah, and it's really interesting to think about the things over time that maybe fade or dissipate, and those that continue and just have such strong muscle memory. And it would be interesting to think about for different cultures, if there are any common threads. Well, actually, if I, if I could just jump in on that, there's yeah. another version of an answer to your first question. I think that a lot of my approach to citizenship in the United States and the work that I do at Citizen University is shaped, of course, by being steeped in American history and being a student of American history and politics and so forth. But it is also formed to a good extent by the fact that I was kind of saturated in a set of Confucian norms yeah. uh, that were not hyper-individualistic, but were about community and ritual and relationship and collective responsibility. And um, and so I often joke that, um, you know, my, my approach to American civic uh, life and to kind of what, what uh, one might call democratic faith uh, is this amalgam of, you know, the Puritan, the Confucian, uh, a little bit of the Jesuit and a bit of the Jewish, you know, just the, the sense of what it means to repair the world, what it means to uh, own responsibility for something greater than yourself. That part was shaped in me by that kind of deep moral DNA of Chinese culture. And I think life in the United States oftentimes veers too far in the other direction toward hyper-individualism and pure raw egotism. And I think having grown up in the kind of household I grew up in, um, makes me very attuned to our our societal need for some corrective. Absolutely. And I was going to point that out as well. How do you reconcile that American individualism, that kind of rugged nature about us that can be something really beautiful that can yield, you know, creativity and greatness, but can also be really challenging when there's no sense of connectivity or community. And I know it's something that I'm sure we've grappled with as Americans for many generations, but especially we feel it today. I'd love to learn a little bit more about talking about your upbringing. Was there any specific moment or experience that really piqued your interest or solidified your interest in civic engagement? When did it really become a passion and a focus of yours? You know, it's interesting. I, I am at a loss to name a single epiphany moment. I think there were a lot of formative times. Uh, I think about the, you know, I was probably about age nine when my parents naturalized and attained United States citizenship. And that was just the year after the bicentennial, which I was, uh, you know, as a kid in second grade, uh, very steeped in and I uh, played Thomas Jefferson in our school play. And uh, and then that Sunday, I played the, the Chinese poet Li Bai um, in the Chinese school play. You know, that that kind of fusion of things was always in my childhood. But as far as civic engagement itself, that came much later, uh, I, I must say. I, I probably in high school had begun to have an interest and an appetite for things that were about politics, not necessarily electoral politics, but the ways in which history and politics and systemic choices impact our lives. Um, and once I went to college, I really became very you know, deeply steeped in both studying that and getting uh, exposed to the chance to practice uh, politics. But 
politics in the electoral sense or in the policymaking sense, in the sense that often is what DC is about. You know, that was my experience. I started doing internships in, in Capitol Hill when I was in college. Um, that's one thing. That is actually, it overlaps a bit with civic engagement, but it's actually, the Venn diagrams are, you know, they're, they're pretty uh, um, non-overlapping actually, you know, uh, and, um, and I would say actually for as much as, you know, my bio might emphasize jobs that I had in Washington, D.C. and working in the White House and so forth, I would say that by far my greatest education in civic engagement has come during the 21 years that I've lived in Seattle. Um, when I moved out here in 2000, um, I was drawn by instinct to a sense that this was a very welcoming place. It was a very Asian place relative to where I'd grown up. Um, but it was also an entrepreneurial place where people, uh, not just in business, but in civic life, where people could just show up look around, realize that there was a need to be met, raise their hand and just start meeting it, right? And it was, there was less hierarchy, less dues paying, less of that kind of, you know, who sent you uh, that, that Chicago politics is all about, right? Uh, and that enabled me pretty much from the time I got here to start getting involved in community. In my first months here, I joined the board of the League of Education Voters. Uh, then I got involved in Seattle public school levies. And then uh, from there, I got uh, involved in other civic uh, causes. I joined the, the Seattle Public Library Board, helped later on found a gun responsibility organization. And so things like that, that were just about being rooted in a place, right? DC is many things, but uh, when you're young and working in politics, it's not exactly a place that you feel rooted in. Um, it's very transient. Um, and so the chance to be truly rooted in community here, both geographically, but also demographically, you know, I'd never had a group of Asian American mentors and teachers in community and public life the way I did here. Um, and people like Kip Takuda and Ruth Wu and others who just you know, showed a path for me to get involved uh, and got me involved in things. That was um, really where I began to practice and build muscle, but also see the necessity of it. And I'm glad that I'd had the experience in uh, national politics um, because it really came, it really made me realize that um, our politics overvalues DC and undervalues um, what happens on the ground in every community or fails to happen on, on the ground, right? And we in Seattle have our share of problems right now um, with inequality and a lot of change that's happening. Um, but we retain, I think, a pretty decent base layer of um, civic activation um, and a spirit of invitation uh, to kind of come on, get involved in this thing. And um, uh, that, that, that shaped me more than anything else. I can really relate to that because after graduating from college, all I wanted to do was work in Congress. And that's what I did. Yeah. But I remember that moment where I left and I wanted to do something else and kind of move more into the advocacy and civic engagement space. And it really felt like the world just opened up because you're less tethered to your desk and the norms of how things are run and all of the constraints. And it felt like this huge bubble of innovation and creativity just opened and it was so much more independent and fun. So I can yes. definitely relate to what that looks like to move from one Washington to the next and think more about the concept of community and local and how you make change and how you make impact. And I think it can be something that's, that's really exciting. So for those who aren't familiar with Citizen University, how would you describe the organization in a nutshell and, and what's your mission? Well, we're a nonprofit uh, based here in Seattle and doing work all around the United States to foster a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship. And, and we really emphasize culture change. We, we think about 
so much of the energy and attention going in many ways properly to um, policy reform ideas and structural change uh, on issues from um, structural racism to our immigration system to you know our tax uh, uh, system and so forth. Um, but our one of our core beliefs is that culture precedes structure, that culture by which we mean the norms, narratives, habits, mindsets, heart sets, scripts that we all indulge in often unconsciously about what it means to be in community or what it means to be, you know, what's normal um, in a community. Um, culture actually defines the frame of the possible, the size of the arena for the structural. Um, and so, you know, we put a great emphasis on really trying to figure out what does it mean then to kind of cultivate a a culture of citizenship. And that boils down to, um, we have the simple equation in our work at, at Citizen University, which is that power plus character equals citizenship. That to live like a citizen means both to become fluent in power and to understand what power is and how it flows and who has it and who does not and why that is and how that can be changed. Uh, but to couple that literacy and power with a grounding in civic character. I don't mean individual virtue like grit or perseverance or diligence or whatever. I mean character in the collective, right? The, the values of mutuality and reciprocity and sharing of burdens and sharing of sacrifice and stewardship and uh, th these norms that, um, that it takes uh, associational life to actually reinforce uh, in us, right? Um, and so our work across the board um, is a combination of teaching power and cultivating character. And we do that in different ways. Um, one of our better known programs uh, is called Civic Saturdays. Uh, and these are gatherings that are like a civic analog to a faith gathering, but uh, it's not of course a synagogue or mosque or church, but it has the arc and the flow and the feel of such a gathering oriented around what it means to believe in democracy. What does it mean to, in the United States in particular, which is a nation bound together only by a creed, a set of ideas. What does it mean to animate those ideas? What does it mean to close the gap between creed and deed every day? And how do we recommit over and over again to each other and to those ideas and ideals? Um, that requires ritual. That requires repeated practice. That requires um, more than just every two or four years voting. It requires community um, uh, in a way that uh, is circles of obligation and relationship. And so that's one program that uh, has spread around the country. We created a civic seminary uh, to train uh, catalytic people from all over, um, tiny, small towns, big cities, you name it, red and blue places, to lead Civic Saturday gatherings uh, for their communities. Um, but on the teaching of power side, we also have programs um, where, particularly with young people, we are just trying to democratize um, what it means to understand power. Uh, and we have a program uh, called the Youth Collaboratory, where high school students from around the, the country um, spend a year together developing power projects uh, for their campus and their community, getting mentored by adult practitioners uh, uh, of civic life. And, uh, uh, and so programs like that, that are really trying to, um, by equipping people with some of these tools, skills, and dispositions, um, really get to, again, um, tending that base garden, that topsoil of culture, right? Uh, um, what are our norms and attitudes about there's no such thing as someone else's problem. Yeah, that, that's that's our work in a nutshell. Yeah, the culture piece, I feel like, is is so crucial and so overlooked. And I, I think about myself in the advocacy world. You know, I've worked on a number of issues over the years. And, you know, right now we have the 
you know, slim task of fighting hate and changing hearts and minds and addressing some of the root causes of bias and bigotry that we're seeing. But I think in an impulse where people want to see change and they want to see action, they, you know, we can legislate our problems and and we can do things on the periphery, but sometimes that underlying polarization and the fissure and the divisiveness and the lack of cohesion that we're seeing in society is just that cultural piece that I feel like we're often ignoring when we're looking at the headlines and looking at the problems. So it's so, um, you know, inspiring to hear about an organization that's looking at it from the ground up and really thinking about how we as a society have connectivity to one another and feel those kind of um, an obligation to one another and can identify those shared values and, and put them into action. You know, actually, the work that you all do at ADL does really underscore the centrality, not only of kind of inner work on an individual level, right? I mean, any individual bigots bigotry begins with some very highly personal complex of hate, fear, um, loss, shame, whatever it might be in that individual's life that leads them to kind of project outwards and uh, and, and want to bring pain to others. Um, but, or and... Um, you know, that individual is situated in a cultural web um, that either gives permission uh, to that way of feeling um, or gives permission to that way of shirking responsibility for one's own suffering and pain and wanting to displace it onto somebody else. Um, And, you know, so much of the work that is about um, not just uh, combating, but in a sense, preventing uh, hate, whether it's anti-Semitism or, you know, we we, we, uh, are living still through a time accelerated by the pandemic of rising anti-Asian hate um, <clears throat> here in the Northwest and all around the country. Um, you know, it's not to say that, you know, laws and policies have their place. You know, people who weaponize their hate have to face consequences uh, of, of law and the action of the state. Um, but um, what we've got to be able to do upstream of that um, is figure out how we invite people in um, such that when their fears their pain, their suffering is going to lead them toward um, indulging in hate and bigotry, um, that they see there's a different path, that they see there's a, there's a more purposeful, there's a, there's a healthier way to find purpose, right? People who indulge in bigotry have chosen a super destructive way to find purpose. Uh, but let's not forget that the purpose, the purpose seeking is part of what's going on there, right? And, uh, and our ability to kind of name an alternative um, in a way that is actually good for them and good for society um, is the bread and butter of what you're doing and we're doing. And one issue that I think is really connected that a lot of our constituents and supporters talk to me about a lot because they're really concerned that the social fabric of our society seems to be deteriorating. And I see it here in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle and other major communities and I see it nationally as well. Um, I think uh, how disconnected we might be from our neighbors and other members of the community and the inability of people to really connect or even talk across difference seems to be a really big challenge that we're seeing in society. And I'd love to know from your point of view, what's your take on all of that? What's your take on some of the current trends we're seeing and how can people push back on that and create more of a sense of connection and community with one another towards a shared purpose? Well, I think it's, um, it's, you know, there are several 
several steps we can all take. Um, and, you know, one, just in terms of what we consume, you know, you, you're too young to remember this, but when, you know, in the 70s, there was a kind of a ad campaign, a public service ad campaign about nutrition that uh, the tagline of which was, you are what you eat. Um, and that, that is absolutely true of our media and social media diet. Um, we are eating not just crap, but we are eating crap designed to make us hate one another, yeah. designed to make us flatten and dehumanize and demonize one another. Um, and so uh, we've got to take more responsibility for what we put into our bodies, number one, um, and, and, and what we consume. And, um, and that's not to say put your head in the sand and avoid all information. It's just uh, learn how to discern, right? Um, I think a second step um, when you talk about what does it take to build connection um, I don't mean to be oversimplified, but connect, join, join any kind of club. Like, I, I think this is one of the most fundamentally atrophied capacities uh, in the body politic over our lifetimes, just the simple act of joining. Um, and it doesn't even have to be a civic or a political club. Uh, joining your gardening club, joining your neighborhood club, joining your uh, book group or whatever it might be, builds a certain kind of muscle. Um, about association, about having to seek out common goals in a diverse group, um, coming up with common agendas, knowing when to give, knowing when to compromise, knowing when to kind of push it. Um, and uh, th those skills have evaporated in American life. Um, and, and the result is what you see at school board meetings now, um, where weaponized activists stirred up by disinformation show up at school board meetings to rant and rave about uh, imagined threats um, and, and, and crowd out the normal, right? And crowd out uh, actual constructive discourse. So that's, that's number two is just join. Uh, uh, joining is contagious. When you join something, um, again, when I first came to Seattle and I joined groups and joined you know, local boards and stuff, it just got me into a web uh, of relationship uh, uh, that transformed me, right? And, uh, but number three, I would say um, is, um, really making a moral commitment to curiosity. Um, my, my friend and fellow Seattleite, uh, Monica Guzman, um, who's a journalist here and, and works as well with Braver Angels, um, uh, an organization in our um, ecosystem of civic work and, and bridge building across uh, partisan divides. Um, she's working on a book that's gonna be coming out soon um, that's all about the under um, valued capacity of curiosity. Mm. Um, our, our civic life right now is completely oversaturated with righteous certitude. I know what I believe. I know I don't need to, you know, if your beliefs are contrary to mine, um, I don't need to dignify them or indulge them. Um, and in fact, doing so somehow diminishes me as a human um, to acknowledge uh, uh, that, that you, you disagree with me. Um, and that righteous certitude, that closed loop thinking is rampant right now across generations and probably more among younger generations than, than older. Um, and um, what M Monica and others are, are trying to remind us is curiosity is a great thing to kindle. Like, uh, I don't mean just curiosity about facts and stuff you can look up on Google, but curiosity about how did you come to see the world this way? Uh, why do you not like, why are you such an idiot or how could you possibly think that stupid conspiracy theory? But like, what is it in your life that makes you want to believe this? What, what is it in your life that makes you seek this out? How, what shaped you? And I think that civic curiosity is something that we've got to cultivate more deeply. And, you know, Citizen University grew 
rather organically from a seed of curiosity, actually. It grew out of a book that I wrote back in 2005 called Guiding Lights about life-changing mentors from all different walks of life mm -hmm. uh, across different domains of business, military, faith, sports, arts. Um, and that book turned into a conference um, and, uh, and that conference turned into an organization. That organization eventually turned into Citizen University. But at the very beginning of that, the seed, literally the two questions that I would use as keys to unlock conversation everywhere I went around the country when I was interviewing people for this book um, were these, who's influenced you and how do you pass it on? And when you invite somebody, particularly a stranger and particularly maybe a stranger you think is like unlike you or maybe even your adversary on some identical identity level, um, uh, who influenced you and how do you pass it on um, are questions that, well, the first question just it invites a humanizing set of reflections. Yeah, they transcend. Not, yeah, you know, it's not just your, who your coach is, your teachers, but it's like, maybe it was this grandparent, maybe it was this person, maybe it was somebody who influenced me for bad, like a tormentor, not a mentor, right? <laughs> um, that shaped me and made me decide I'm never gonna be like that. But the second question of how do you pass it on um, uh, makes us conscious again, that we are not atoms, we are not isolated kind of entities just pursuing our own individual destinies. Um, we're continually passing on our values, our ways of being. Um, and so a little mindfulness goes a long way and curiosity is key to both those questions. And I think, um, you know, for people who are listening, you know, you don't need to be, you don't need to have worked in politics. You don't need to have worked in Washington, DC um, to watch what you eat in your social media and media diet, um, to join clubs uh, and to become more curious about those with whom you differ. Um, those three steps alone um, will go a long way toward rehumanizing our civic culture. I love that. Just join, and maybe I'll coin it compassionate curiosity, because I love that idea of connecting across difference and trying to find the universal and the human across all of us. Absolutely. So you alluded to the some you know intergenerational activism and differences. Um, that are taking place right now. And I'd love to get your thoughts on post-George Floyd when we saw a national reckoning on race relations in our country and a huge wave of youth activism led by communities of color. What would be your advice for young people seeking to make the kind of changes that they want to see in society right now, whether it's equity or in criminal justice spaces or climate justice. I mean, I've been so inspired by the throngs of young people who are coming forward to really try to envision and to put into place the kind of communities that they want to see and, and say that they're no longer, on the, no longer on the sidelines. But, you know, now that we've been in this kind of national reckoning, um, you know, for over a year and this brutal, um, and long pandemic, how would you inspire or advise this next generation that wants to see change? Well, I, I would begin in the first place by acknowledging that, um, you know, maybe I do have some uh, nuggets of wisdom to share with uh, younger people. Um, and uh, as often, um, I am definitely learning from uh, this younger generation. Um, and so I think there has to be a a mutualistic conversation there across generational lines. And, I, and I'm not just be, that's not just like pandering to young people. I actually, I mean, because implicit in that is they do need to listen to people with more experience too, right? 
Um, but people with more experience, I think, right now can't just write them off as, oh, TikTokers, Gen Z people, you know, Instagrammers just, you know, absorb absorb with themselves or with kind of an instant hit of, um, you know, do dopamine that you get on social media for something, uh, for virtue signaling. Um, I, I think a couple of things uh, in terms of counsel. Um, and this is indeed counsel that I give to the high school students who participate in our programs like the Youth Collaboratory. Number one, truly commit to the, the power plus character equation. Commit to getting literate in power. Um, don't think of power as a blob out there that don't, you don't really understand and you wanna, don't think of power as the powers that be, which is not you, which is a thing you're opposed to. Think of power as something you have a hand in, you are part of, and you can actually, um, and is infinitely renewable, and you, by organizing other young people, can actually generate out of thin air, right? But knowing, having that disposition requires practice, and it requires knowing um, uh, something about power uh, that is more than just that kind of blob of a concept out there. Um, and uh, th that's number one. Um, and, and of course, the same thing with cultivating civic character, like the, the, the norms and values that undergird youth activism around racial justice, youth activism around climate justice, uh, youth activism around um, gun safety. Um, um, you know, all of these, um, yes, have policy dimensions, but um, what these young people can and should do is to learn how to speak moral narratives that invite other people in, that these are narratives of belonging, narratives of hope, narratives of, um, uh, of responsibility taking. Um, that can bring in people who might lean conservative as much as people who are already woke and liberal, right? Uh, um, uh, and, and that they've got to kind of cultivate that side of kind of what are the universal appeals to people's moral sensibilities that, um, uh, that we can do and not just ride, um, uh, you know, the, the pure righteousness of my cause. Like it should be self-evident that my cause is righteous. And if you either are not on board or, or have qualms or doubts, then, you know, get out of the way, you're wrong or you're, you're backwards. You're 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 an obstacle. Um, th that that is um, that that's not productive, right? Um, so power and character. But the third big thing I would really emphasize to younger um, civic catalysts um, is get in shape for the marathon. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're young, you sprint, um, and when you're young, growing up in this in a in an age where the attention span lasts as long as a Snapchat snap. Um, you know, you think the long game is two weeks ago or two weeks from now, but the long game, the lesson of the civil rights movement, uh, civil rights movement did not happen in the 1950s and 1960s. It began in the 1930s. Um, if you want to rewind back, it began when W.E.B. Du Bois started the NAACP and the crisis uh, in the 1910s, right? Um, this is generational work. Um, and yes, there are some crises like the climate crisis that uh, for which we do not have generational runway left, uh, and so I'm not saying just go slow, but I am saying prepare for the long game, prepare uh, for the, you know, that both prepare mentally for the fact that you're not going to get instant wins um, and that small wins and even near-term defeats can lay the groundwork for longer uh, term victories um, and building that power and building that muscle. Um, but that requires a commitment to the marathon and not the sprint. Yeah, that is... Um... I really like your last point. Um, having worked in gun violence prevention prior to joining ADL, 
when your cause seems so urgent and, and really a matter of life and death, whether you, you know, pass laws and policies and, and change the culture, it can be so hard to have that long game. Um, but, you know, we constantly told ourselves it took over 10 years, you know, if not more um, to pass a very, very bare bones background checks bill in this country when the president of the United States was almost directly, you know, murdered with a gun. So that kind of marathon and not a sprint mentality is so crucial to making change and, and long-term culture shift as well. I could really think of no, no one act that really, I think, characterizes what is power in this country um, as voting. But I think it's really, really powerful and one that deserves repeating. Well, you know, I, I do think that um, when we talk about voting, it's really important to remember, and I often say this uh, to young people, that there's no such thing as not voting. Not voting is voting. Not voting is actively choosing to hand your power and your voice over to somebody whose interests will often be opposed to your own and who will be very glad to take your voice and your power and say, thank you, I will now wield this against you, right? Um, Not voting uh, is like wearing a sign on your back that says, kick me, uh, and a t-shirt on the front that says, chump, right? It's just announcing to the world that you'd like to be taken advantage of. And, um, And I think that's true for everybody. And I think particularly young people, when they hear it that way, um, no, no young person wants to be, you know, uh, willingly signing on to be a chump. But I think it's true across the board. And I think, you know, th- that is the corollary to that is that voting is no panacea. Voting is just one of the, you know, hoping that voting fixes everything is like hoping that, you know, lifting weights with your right arm suddenly gets you in shape, right? It's one of the things you got to do to get in shape. But there's a whole suite of other things you got to do. There's a whole suite of other ways to move the body so that the body politic stays healthy. Uh, but voting is for sure one of the most foundational and uh, you know civically sacred ones. Um, and the message that uh, you know the reason why I say this message about there's no such thing as not voting is I'm not trying to say eat your vegetables, do your duty, like be a better person. Um, I'm trying to say don't give away your power. This is one very concrete example of how. We are all more powerful than we think, and we are all, almost all the time, mindlessly giving away our power, giving away our clout, uh, thoughtlessly just uh, discarding it or letting someone else uh, grab it and use it in our name. Um, And so uh, I think this is as much a a matter of uh, ethical urgency as it is just practicality, that uh, uh, to to vote is to to kind of show in one concrete way, among others, um, that I'm going to be uh, master of my own choices, uh, and that I'm not going to just be a cork bobbing along the the, the river of life here, uh, uh, and that I'm going to take some responsibility. Uh, and I think that's something that if I had to boil down everything I've been saying in this whole conversation, it does boil down to that. What we've got in the United States is a culture that is heavily oriented toward rights and underdeveloped around responsibilities. And, and yet, my message is that responsibility is not a burden. Responsibilities um, actually liberate you. Responsibilities, taking responsibility actually creates more freedom because it means that we have a society that is stable, um, adaptive, resilient, regenerative, and can handle change and crisis. Um, when everybody shirks responsibility and you get a brittle, fragile society in which it becomes every person for themselves, um, that kind of freedom ain't worth the price of freedom, right? That kind of freedom 
uh, is incredibly isolating and dangerous. And so voting um, is connected to that, but it's part of a deeper ethical framework. And shifting gears a little, um, you touched on this earlier, but over the last few years, we've seen a real surge in hate targeting a number of different communities. But unfortunately, the pandemic has really unleashed hate targeting the Asian American and Pacific Islander community or AAPI community, which we know has existed for generations. What reflections do you have on this moment that we're in now and the overall Stop AAPI Hate Movement? You know, um, you're absolutely right that we are living in such a moment uh, of a a resurgence of that kind of anti-Asian hate. Um, And it's worth remembering with the lens of history um, that this happens every time there is some felt threat um, in the United States that can be attached to or blamed on um, Asian people. Um, It was the yellow peril uh, 150 years ago when Chinese railroad workers and laborers started arriving in enough numbers to make white working men, especially Irish working men um, in the West Coast, feel threatened. Um, and that fed anti-Chinese riots. Um, of course, uh, you know, in, in the wake of Pearl Harbor, um, uh, the, the kind of fear, um, that the blinding fear that led Americans to stop seeing their Japanese American neighbors as American neighbors, but see them only as Japanese, only as kind of parts of the undiluted whole controlled by the emperor of Japan, um, led of course to internment and incarceration. Um, and Uh, This age right now where you had a president of the United States uh, racializing the coronavirus and calling it uh, the China virus, and uh, again, uh, back to culture, creating a culture of permission uh, for casual uh, scapegoating and casual bigotry um, uh, help feed uh, the ways in which uh, um, first random and then increasingly intentional and coordinated forms of anti-Asian hate have have indeed spread like a contagion um, across the United States. So um, you know, the lens of history um, tells us, um, uh, explains how we got here, uh, but what it also can help us uh, with is what to do about it now. Um, and what I find somewhat heartening um, is that um, people across the AAPI community, and again, especially young people, younger activists, and younger people who maybe previously haven't been politically or civically engaged or involved, um, are recognizing that no one's coming to save them. And it's time for us to mobilize, find our voice and organize to create power out of thin air by showing up and putting pressure on elected officials, policymakers, uh, media entities uh, to change the narrative uh, and to spotlight both this hate, but also to um, uh, make sure that people understand that Asian Americans are not just kind of a pool of cowering potential victims, uh, but we are people who are here shaping civic life shaping uh, our community's uh, futures, uh, and that there are affirmative ways that AAPI community members now must kind of pivot off of the defense and now into the affirmative uh, ways of showing up in community, right? And I think this is, um, uh, I spoke at a Stop Asian Hate rally in, uh, you know, in March or April this year, and that was fundamentally my message, um, um, that um, it's incredibly heartening to see how many people, and that, that rally um, in the International District in Chinatown, um, uh, you know, pre-widespread vaccine was just surprisingly, hearteningly filled with people who were masked, distanced, but present, who were showing up, and not just Asian people, right? People from across every identity group 
showing up in solidarity. And I said, it's great that we're showing up here um, to protect ourselves and to express solidarity. And now we've got to convert this into an affirmative opportunity to build power, uh, to build voice, to show up as citizens, uh, to ensure that the narrative of who is us, who belongs, who is a Seattleite, who is an American, includes us from the get-go uh, and not just as a quick corrective afterthought in the wake of, a, uh, of an act of bigotry. Um, and so um, I think that's, that's the opportunity we have here now. And here is where you know, members of the Asian American and API community can learn a great deal um, from Jewish Americans and everything that organizations like ADL have been doing. Again, not only in the moment of crisis and the immediate reaction to events of hate, uh, but in the laying of groundwork of responsibility taking, in the changing of culture, um, and in the building of collective and civic voice um, in, in a way where advocacy can actually be uh, inclusive and not just reactive. And that was beautifully put. Um, ending on an uplifting note, what is one thing that's currently bringing you hope? Oh, well, we've talked a lot about it. I mean, I think um, to me, it is the um, young people, the high schoolers and college students who I get to spend time with all around the country um, who are just persisting, who are just learning how to uh, make their voices heard, who are, um, because they've grown up the most wired and digital generation in human history, um, you know, thinking in network terms comes supernaturally to them um, and their ability to think about how you change narratives and how you um, move social norms and how you practice power um, is revelatory. And it's uh, it's different from um, the, the more conventional ways that uh, I was steeped in as a young person. Um, and so I, I'm inspired every day by, uh, by those young people. And um, I still, uh, because of them and because my day job at Citizen University uh, means that I spend all my waking hours talking to, learning from, working with people who are trying to be part of the solution um, rather than part of the problem, um, because of that, I remain net hopeful uh, for, uh, for our country. And that's not because I'm Pollyanna. I'm, I'm very aware that we are in a period that's a la the 1850s. We are in a period of creeping disunion uh, right now in the United States. Uh, but unlike the 1850s, there is no easy geographic way to split this country. We are marbled in with each other. And I don't just mean like within a neighborhood. I mean within each of our souls. We are one another. And young people get this more I think, than a lot of older people. And so I, I hope that they will help lead us to a path of union that is not about the unanimity forced by a dominant few, but the kind of union uh, that grows out of a spirit of the beloved community. Uh, I do believe that's possible. Uh, and I believe, I believe it's happening. And I believe young people will be the ones who build it for us. Well, thank you, Eric, so much for your time, for the incredible work you and your team are doing at Citizen University. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you today. I so enjoy this conversation and uh, really appreciate the work that uh, you and all your colleagues do, uh, Miri, at, uh, at ADL. Thank you.